Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Great. Shall, shall I shall I lead us in? Yes, yes. Lead lead us lead us to our doom. Uh, excellent. Uh, hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. It's a new episode of HV. I am I'm John, joined as always by my good friend Ash. Ash, how are you? Oh, I I am alive and well. I have been listening to so much uh, burial, caretaker, little acts. I have just been getting ready for this conversation. Uh, we are we are in for a treat because joining us again in the HV crypt is the horror vanguard visiting professor of <laughs> of speculative blobtology, uh, Matt Cahoon, otherwise known as uh, Xena Gothic, is back with us. Matt, how are you? Hi, yeah, I'm not bad, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us back. It's a pleasure to talk to you both again. Uh, you Listeners might remember uh, our, our, honestly, I think, groundbreaking academic conference <laughs> uh, on uh, Blobtology uh, as a previous episode. Um, but we are, we are back to talk about um, the reissue, the first of the Zero Classics, Zero Books Classics uh, that are being reissued with some new material. Uh, we are talking about the landmark Ghosts of My Life by Mark Fisher, out now uh, with a brand new intro uh, from Matt uh, and an afterward from, I think it's, it's Simon Reynolds, right? Who's didn't done the afterward? Yes. But uh, where where would you like to start, Ash? Where would you like to kind of dive into this? Oh well, let's 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 start with the start with the new material. Let's let's start with Matt's wonderful new introduction. So, uh, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you wrote as the new preface to one of Fisher's classics? Sure. Um, yeah, it's Ghosts of My Life is such an odd book, I think, um, uh, but a really important one, I think, for me and for a lot of people. Um, I think it was the first book of Marx that I read, actually. Um, I kind of came to it after capitalist realism. Um, but I think the thing that it's most responsible for in being a kind of collection of blog posts um, is starting off the sort of uh, fall down the rabbit hole into K-punk and the wider blogosphere, um, which is something that I think has kind of been lost, at least in the history of this the history it's not that old but it just kind of feels strange to talk about it as a history but um i guess the history of this book's gestation um so yeah i was invited to write the introduction um by terry goddard i think at the strangely the end of last year um so it feels like it's been a long time coming um but uh yeah wanted to just dig a bit deeper into the surface figure out what the story was, not just with this book, but I guess a lot of the terms it discusses and introduces, um, but gives some more background as to how um, what Mark later ended up writing about was um, quite explicitly sort of workshopped um, on his blog in the 2000s. Um, and I think, I hope, um, that giving a bit of background to that um, clarifies maybe what is quite a complex and often quite confused concept of ontology that has come to mean so many different things to so many different people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's, there's two things, there's two kind of strands at work in the introduction and you can, you can tell me whether I'm, I'm sort of being slightly reductive here or not, but from, from, from reading it, I think what you do really well is kind of, put into question the sort of formal conditions of how this book kind of exists as a material object, right? It's this thing which emerges from a distinct series of ruptures. It's it's kind of temporarily disjointed because it it's it's a series of blog posts first and then it 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 gets the term that it kind of really hangs its hat on kind of falls out of favor and then it comes back. So it's this weird kind of like it's a you are right, it's a super weird book on a sort of formal level. Um, and you also sort of bring out the kind of uh, intellectual genealogy that sort of feeds into and sustains. Um, but maybe maybe you can kind of flesh out a little bit more 
what makes it a weird book? What, what, why? Because I agree with you. I think you're completely right. This is a weird book, but maybe you'd like to <laughs> sort of like lay out why. Um, maybe there's a way of doing that anecdotally. I think that what I find strange about it, um, and even now in hindsight, see, so yeah, as you say, I've kind of gone through, um, at least gone back to when Mark and the rest of the blogosphere first started talking about hauntology, which is, was around maybe... Um, 2006 was when the the term was sort of first coined by Simon Reynolds or sort of suggested, um, borrowed from Derrida as a word to use to describe this new genre of music they felt was emerging. Um, But then, yeah, how does this backlash to hauntology after the financial crash? And then it kind of comes back and Mark publishes this book eventually in 2014. Um, And I think what I found useful, at least in writing, is that I remember when the book came out originally, um, I remember like first reading an e- excerpt from it in the Quietus, um, being totally taken by it, like pre-ordering it immediately. Um, and experiencing, I guess, the hype that was around hauntology at that time, completely unaware that the thing had been around for almost a decade at that point, um, as if this kind of hype cycle had just renewed. And um, few people that I was aware of at the time at least as as the book became more popular, um, seemed to have any idea um, about this sort of strange history. Um, and I guess what makes that weird, especially now in hindsight, is how it kind of does what the... the, the like a lot of things, actually. It kind of reminds me of the things that Mark would write with his sort of friends in the CCRU, this sort of this strange text that actually represents and does what it's trying to describe. So here you have a book that's all about spectres, um, these strange things that these uh, these mm-hmm. things that the haunt us in our crashed present, the littered. I don't know what does Mark say. This uh, um, uh, a present littered with the sort of wreckage of failed projects. Um, and here's a book about hauntology that is already kind of a spectre of something that's had its day, um, that's newly born, and then kind of. It's already, it's a book that haunts itself in that regard. It's like a really weird feedback loop of, um, that, that is both describing a feedback loop and you see it already at the moment of its first publication, never mind its second one, um, caught up in that same feedback loop. Um, and trying to wrap your head around that, I think, is probably something that Mark spent most of his life doing, really. Um, and it makes it quite an interesting. Um, yeah, a book to reflect on, especially what just almost a decade later. Yeah, I think one of the things that really jumped out to me about your new introduction to this book is I think one of the first things you say about it is that it's a book out of time. And I think that that reads so well, not only with Ghosts of My Life itself and Hauntology having this kind of cyclical existence that seems to keep recurring. But we also have this the subject matter of the book, which is I guess we could call the long 1970s that we're still in, you know the the you know what would go on to to be capitalist realism and this kind of like culture stuck in a groove, but also like in a way it's a it's a book out of time, you know like like where where is the time left for the kind of hauntological approach, right? This thing that keeps dying and resurfacing and kind of uh, as as you said a moment ago it's it's got such a diverse set of uses and meanings and interpretations at this point that it's kind of like it's it's as ephemeral as the original pun intended it to be yes well i i feel yeah. like yeah sorry i feel like maybe it would be maybe it would be useful cuz you know it in in a way hauntology gets kind of bandied around as a bit of a meme now right it's um, and it, as you point out people don't want to be associated with that term anymore um, reject it even, but maybe, maybe it would be it would be a kind of useful thing to do to kind of. Uh, how did that happen? How did we end up at this point? How did how did a term which is a kind of a a incredibly Derridian pun uh, become adopted <laughs> by this sort of loose collective of 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 bloggers and theoreticians and critics? And how did they kind of move it? And why was the backlash so kind of sudden? Um, 
I mean, yeah, I guess that it's what is carried over from Derrida. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's this, how to talk about this without getting really into Derrida. Um, It's that more of that, um, I was kind of reading actually recently that this, this uh, uh, Derrida's of of grammatology and there's a Judith Butler wrote this really nice intro to it. Um, I think she kind of does something interesting that might be clarifying, actually. Um, she's sort of talking about how Spivak writes this English translation of that book, um, a book that's essentially about how difficult writing is, the problem of writing, that what is this strange medium that sort of mimics speech but isn't speech, and then what? how do you translate in a book that's dealing with that problem that then sort of doubles down on that same problem in changing for speech to writing and then French writing to English writing. Um, and Derrida has this whole concept of the trace that goes with that. You know, if you were, what's lost in all of those kind of different processes of writing and translating all the rest of it, um, translating for Derrida is always this kind of mourning. Um, so there's always, it's always a kind of remembrance. You're never kind of... Uh, you're always kind of just translating experience or lived experience or, you know, something. There's, there's, but you can't really grasp it. The present as it is, is elusive. Um, no matter what art you're maybe making, all you're really grabbing at is a trace. Um, and I think when ontology kind of became a thing in the blogosphere, what was being heard in a lot of music from around the, well, around the 2000s, like I think, that people would make use of. Yeah, the Caretakers are a really obvious example. Bands like uh, uh, Ariel Pink's Haunted Graffiti, um, labels like Ghostbox, um, Burial, of course, as well. Um, is that you have this strange transition, if not a translation, from analog recording technology to, to the digital, um, and that a lot of this music actually emphasizes the sort of traces of that transition. So you have a lot of music that uses now this kind of um, innate um, aesthetic quality of certain taken for granted um, uh, recording technologies, like listening to a vinyl record, hearing the kind of crackle. Um, And once that kind of warmth, that sort of the things that audiophiles love to really fetishize, once that's taken away, well, is is that something to mourn? Or, you know, is is there what happens when you reintroduce the trace of that technology that's now been made redundant? Um, use it as an instrument. You know, don't just take it as a given that it has to exist there, but actually in its death, in in mourning that transition from old technologies, what new affects does that produce when you use it anyway um when you sample something and translate it from one to the other um i think that's though though i think that there's a lot of sort of disparagement that um hauntology as a musical genre doesn't really pay much heed to derrida um i think there's probably more in there than it's given credit for um but i suppose that that very question of mourning, that question of remembering the past and reintroducing it into the into I don't know whatever you're doing at the moment, the backlash that comes from hauntology not too long after it was sort of first adopted in sort of the music press and the music blogosphere is the financial crash where you have this utter rejection of any kind of um, mourning. Um, this uh, or any kind of melancholic process that we should, um, you know, be, uh, be somewhat regretful and and sort of bitter, think bittersweetly about the things that we've lost. Um, what's left over really is this just kind of postmodern stasis. Things are ending. Things are, uh, or maybe you know, more should end than is currently is ending, if that makes sense. You know, we can talk about the redundancy of certain technologies, but we can't bring ourselves to talk about the redundancy of capitalism. Um, and I think it's that Mark kind of makes that leap. Um, but, um, and, and so do others. Um, but the backlash then comes from, well, that's not a problem of remembrance. Um, what we really need to do here is we need to, and this is something that Alex Williams sort of talks about, which I sort of mentioned in the introduction. Um, it's a problem of of thinking the new, um, 
and are, are, or, or that we are somehow incapable of thinking the new when sort of certain catastrophes or disasters like the financial crash happen. You know, if that's an opportunity for a complete do-over of, of actually being able to acknowledge that this thing that we've been involved with, as, even something as big as capitalism, is unfit for purpose, why can't we think um, and reintroduce newness why why do we have to uh you know rely on this kind of crashed present why can't we escape that and really make things new in a kind of modernist approach that you know to um that i think for williams you know uh, people like mark and sam reynolds were always obsessed with um with this kind of modernist approach that had dwindled so what was it for them to then fall back on something like ontology which doesn't necessarily think in a or is, is too reliant on recombining the past rather than really making things totally new um i mean that was a whole philosophical sort of question at that time that probably isn't worth getting too much into sort of the these battle lines in the academy between uh, Gilles Deleuze and Alain Badiou and this question of the new was everywhere at that time um both before and after the financial crash um but I mean, if anything, the legacy of this book and that kind of backlash and its re-emergence, I think, is is partly making those questions that were so popular in the Academy at the time, bringing them to bear on pop culture um, in a way that I, I can't think has, you know, happened since um, with the sort of, you know, these, these big philosophical questions that, yeah, get debated around in sort of postgraduate seminars there's i can't think of any others that have really broken through to the extent that this has um and that again i mean you know it, it, it gets it it's i'm 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 aware that i'm la- adding layer and layer and layer here but this is sort of how it goes um that uh it, it's it, no i've completely lost my train of thought um <laughs> I have this sauce all the time. Um, I have this sauce all the time. Yeah, it's it's a defining hallmark of our show to kind of just like, <laughs> much like a specter to to evaporate with the dawn light. Yes, well, I guess you know that I'm, I'm I was already aware in, in trying to sort of answer that question that you it's I think this this, this this me rambling now is probably the best explanation for why it's both fallen from its perch and continued anyway. There's so much in there to dig at. And yet I can sort of feel your potential listeners drifting off as I try and get into it. It's like this, it's fascinating and deeply boring at the same time. And that's really interesting, I think, anyway, like this kind of, yeah, it is a kind of popular modernism. It's this really weird tension between kind of academic philosophy and the, you know, the, 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 the heart of contemporary pop culture, um, which is a weird two things to try and hold together, but they did it quite well, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think there's like a few really interesting things to like weave weave together off of the back of what you were just saying. I think that you're absolutely right. This is the only way to approach hauntology because it is a haunting. You know, ghosts. The, any haunting is necessarily one not not temporally synchronous, right? It is something from the past recurring into the present, but but also contingent upon uncertain futures, right? Like ghosts are out of time. And they also require a layered and complicated history, right? Like take the ghosts in Poltergeist. You had to have this, you know, like burial ground and then the capitalist machinations leading to a suburban housing development that ignored it. You know, there's there's so much that goes on. It's almost like the lore in a FromSoft video game when you talk about hauntology. <laughs> you, you're, we're, we're, like, we're like reading inscriptions on the back of a sword trying to piece together a coherent narrative. Yeah, yeah. Um Though I'm I'm kind of always keen to stress too because I think there's like a lot of new terms that were kind of dug up at that time. I mean, you can you can, I think it's you're more than anyone's more than capable of understanding ontology without having to oh, rely yeah. too much on Derrida, and that's kind of the beauty of it. Um, and at the same time, there's this I, I don't know I'm a bit like this with a few things that kind of emerged at this time, but you know, ontology was it's a 2006 concept, and that's for me like that's the the where the meat of it is, that's where the real tension is, and that's where it's interesting in that in, in that time. Um, 
the strange thing is in in acknowledging that and yeah and, and figuring out where these different specters come from is that you can easily decontextualize ontology and sort of consider you can go all the way back to i don't know fucking shakespeare or something or even further back <laughs> of just like figuring out like don't you just you could just do a history of ghosts in culture um but i think that kind of loses what is really at the heart of hauntology at that time why it was a new word um all the things it kind of did bring with it but what it wanted to do specifically at a certain time in a certain moment politically and culturally um so as much as it does feel like reading it's like a yes something on the back of a source and that's great fun <laughs> i'm always kind of like no don't don't fall into the trap of looking too far back like it but, and i think that's what has happened with a lot of with hauntology, with this book in general, and with Mark's thought in general, um, there's so much focus on, I guess, the baggage that he brings with the things that haunt him in particular. Yeah, yeah. But he's always bringing them to call the the present into question, um, and yeah, that's always the danger with hauntology. I think is that, um, or how it can broadly be discussed as meme or otherwise, um, you get too far down into things and you lose sight of the present that we're really trying to interrogate. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's true. And I think maybe that's why it's interesting that this book has gotten a reissue now. Um, I mean, uh, Ash, Ash called it the long 1970s. And I'm like, in the UK, we're in the midst of a hot strike summer. They're talking, they were talking today about possible blackouts and energy uh, shortages. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there is the, the, the very, beginnings perhaps of of uh union militancy i'm like oh oh no, nothing has all of this all of this kind of like frantic activity <laughs> that we've lived through since you know since 2008 or you know we could we could be jamesonian and say since since the beginnings of neoliberalism in the, in the mid 70s mm -hmm. and it's like oh we're still here you know it's sort of like it's and reading reading the book again over the last week or so it's been that moment of kind of like uh, you you sort of like jolt awake almost. You kind of sit up and you go, "Oh, hang on, this is this is now." <laughs> you have that moment of, yeah. of, of feeling that kind of like uh, going, "Oh, this this diagnosis obviously in, in some ways has changed." And it's and I think your point about not not kind of trapping ourselves in in two thousand six is really important. Uh, but but there's so much of this which is still so uh, burningly applicable. And so people might be wondering why it's gotten a reissue, but like just flicking through it this week, I was like, oh no, this is obvious. This is, this is obvious. This obviously still mm -hmm. has things that, <laughs> that we have to deal with. Yeah. I think that's the, the one thing that I thought when I was invited to write the introduction, I kind of read through the book again for the first time in quite a while, actually. Um, but I think it's something that I write on the very first page of the intro that I think is true of the book in general. And of Marx thought in general, it's often kind of um, uh, not so much acknowledged as if he's sort of seen as a pessimistic thinker who thinks that nothing changes. But, um, you know, I think that, and I, yeah, to quote myself somewhat narcissistically, <laughs> I think that, that what's interesting, yeah, as you say, really, looking at every, everything has changed and that's why it's so weird that so much has stayed the same. Um, and I think that's that's sort of a crux at the heart of a lot of what Mark was talking about. But it's you can feel it. It's palpable, especially right now. Um, we're, we're, we live in a completely different world um, to the nineteen seventies, obviously. So why why do these things keep coming back as if nothing has changed? That's that's the sort of weird mindfuck I think that really, uh, well, a lot of people, not just Mark, but I guess a whole generation of thinkers actually have um, tried to really wrestle with. Yeah, I'm I'm running out of I'm running out of the uh, the number. I'm I'm losing the ability to count the number of once in a lifetime massive economic crises that I'm living through. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so it sort of feels very weird. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's maybe that's the it's part of God. I know we well before we started recording, I always said we shouldn't mention the A word. Yeah, the seal is Buckle broken. Buckle up, everybody. <laughs> We must now talk of accelerationism. Let me uh, let me quickly bring up some receipts so I don't get too far <laughs> off piece. Because <laughs> um, I think it is that's I guess that's what lies at the heart of 
not really the book. It's, this is the strange thing about this book in particular is that it sort of covers such a long stretch of time. It doesn't necessarily um, really sort of skewer the present too much. I mean, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's the, as you well as we were saying. It's it's out of. It's a book out of time for sure. Um, but I guess that the thing that really um, initiated the backlash against hauntology was the financial crash. Um, and it was uh, against the, the the first person to really write a critique of it um, to sort of try and kill it and move on to something else was Alex Williams, who wrote a post about um, accelerationism. Um, and I do mention this in the introduction and give it quite a lengthy footnote. Um, but there's 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 probably a lot more to be said that I do think is genuinely interesting. Um which is partly on that question of, yeah, how do we think the new? Um, there's so many different ways that hauntology has been interpreted. There's even more deplorable ways that accelerationism has been interpreted. But at its heart, it was initially, Alex Williams wrote this blog post called Against Hauntology, Giving Up the Ghost. Um, In the recording process, the original sound waves are converted to varying electrical current. <laughs> You believe in ghosts, Buck? Uh, so yeah, so there's so Alex Williams writes this blog post in 2008, I guess just before the financial crash, um, called "Against Hauntology: Giving Up the Ghost." And I've drawn it a bit in the introduction, but I guess the key line that he sort of says is that um, he he identifies hauntology as a kind of just a fashionable trend, really. Um, in critical theory that touches on pop culture, in his own words. Um, mm -hmm. But what he says is that it's, it's um, beached... Uh, well, this is, I'll, I'll read it in full because I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's probably the main critique that still hangs around. Um, he says, this, this philosophical concept of ontology originates in Derrida's Spectres of Marx, but in its current formulation, it is applied to a particular aesthetics of pop music whilst carrying with it the echoes of its original political context. In a sense, Hauntology's ghostly audio is seen as a form of good postmodernism, as set against the bad postmodernism of a rampaging retroism. Beached as it seems we are at the end of brackets cultural history, it is certainly a seductive argument. By foregrounding the processes at the material level, sampling, versioning, deliberately invoking buried or false childhood memories, etc. It's contended that such music comes to terms with the deadlock which we face, the inability to properly think the new as such and make of this condition something positive. And I think that's kind of the problem that Williams attempts to address with accelerationism in the original instance. This rather than, I mean, yeah, to, to it's another example of trying to get too bogged down in the in the history of a term, which I think is probably what's yeah. confused accelerationism so much that no one seems to have a coherent definition of what it means. But I think at the, at least the level where you know that the, this critique that Williams poses, it's then Benjamin Noyce that reads this post and says that sounds like something I've been talking about. I call it accelerationism, and then the rest is history. Um, but I think it's that key point where William says, you know, we have this inability to properly think the new as such and make of this condition something positive. And for him, I think what he reads in, in Mark's work in Ghosts of, well, I guess in the post that like would later become Ghosts of My Life and on the blogs and that are surrounding it, it's that actually, you know, this, this inability to think the new as such, um, is a condition that they make actually negative. Um, which doesn't necessarily mean that there's there's no tautology here between good, bad, positive, negative. But I think you know Mark was always actually at least back in at this time was was very much interested in, in negativity, um, in sort of denaturalizing. Uh, I think what he calls in one blog post after capitalist realism comes out this uh, the uh, spontaneous unreflexive ideology. I think it's what he quotes from Zizek. Um, which is this sense that he talks about in capitalist realism that um, everything's shit and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, you know, that's pessimism. Mark's point is that everything is shit, but there's so much that we can do. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of this, this negativity, I think. But 
I think that Williams kind of wants more than that or did want more than that. And you, I think for me, at least you can't talk about hauntology without talking about accelerationism. They're both sort of, they're, they're two sides of the same coin dealing with that question of how to think the new. Um, and what's, I think what actually makes Ghost of My Life so interesting and actually such a strong book, really, despite being so fragmentary, is that I don't think Mark took that question lightly. And, you know, some, what is it, sort of six years after he wrote a lot of this material, he sits with that and comes back and he presents his argument again anyway, um, in a way that I think is far more positive in a sort of strange way. For, you know, for all of its... Um, we never kind of got accelerationist mark. He wrote about this kind of positive sense of the term a lot um, in a lot of articles that haven't been that widely shared, even less so since it kind of fell from its perch and had its own sort of monstrous backlash. But um, he was interested in what to do about that. And I think that's kind of what I sort of gesture towards the end of the introduction where I guess we talked about it already, this sense of spectres and all the rest of it. But um, I think what Mark ends up going towards when he starts talking about his work on acid communism, that kind of final and finished book, um, is this maybe more positive sense where, you know, it's not spectres, but hallucinations. It's not memory, but imagination, um, ways of political thinking that are probably, well, you know, arguably closely related, but, you know, have one having a slightly negative and the other having a slightly positive orientation, um, remembering and hallucinating Mark moving from one to the other. And I think that's kind of the same play um, between hauntology and accelerationism. Um, but it's a very difficult conversation to have. <laughs> yeah. Because, because in a, in a way, accelerationism was unable to accelerate beyond its own history. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the yeah. ways in, and in, in some ways was actually, uh, was kind of torn out of, this 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 context in ways that you know people who initially maybe developed the term can control. I think the thing you say in the introduction, maybe in that footnote, is that um, they are essentially both concerned with the question of subjectification. You know, not not only do how do we how do we think the new, but actually what kind of subject is necessary for the thinking of the new at all, right? And, and so how 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 do we get to that point where not just what can we think, but who, what is it that's doing the thinking? Um, yes. And I think that that is a good way of seeing them to, those two terms as this kind of like, uh, as, you, as you put it, you know, this kind of dialectically uh, pair, this dialectical pair of concepts that are trying to push forward thought in, in I think, some very interesting ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, reminds me of a conversation that was had maybe a couple of years ago at this point, I think after Sophie died, um, uh, which was precisely about hauntology. And I guess there was, there was a, I think it was Matt Bloomink who wrote a series of posts about Sophie's music and called it anti-hauntological. And we had kind of, I think a, a quite fun sort of blogospheric sparring of like, my argument was that, well, anti-hauntology is accelerationism but you know whatever um but it, but it, but it, but sophie's a great example i think of what that subject looks like um and it's kind of something i've been thinking about more recently where you know you kind of go back to modernism you go back to that original moment of you know how do we make it new um a lot of there's a few books that have come out recently actually that are really good on this um i think one is no modernism without lesbians by someone like the name i can't remember um but there was, you know, there's these arguments that have been had that, you know, women were the cause of modernism, um, despite most of the modernists, at least in terms of literary modernism that we think of, it's a lot of quite, you know, it's very masculine. It's sort of D.H. Lawrence, um, Henry Miller, um, Wyndham Lewis, all the rest of it. Um, but actually, you know, it's, 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 uh, women's writing. Um, uh, and actually what I think, Anais Nin calls a, an androgynous writing that really drove modernism further. This kind of um, psychological coupling of subjective positions. Um, 
and kind of thinking about that history, you know, it's interesting, I think, that Sophie um, and a lot of um, trans musicians in general are kind of held up now as that sort of new vanguard. But um, I think that's precisely what's kind of been gotten at with um, a lot of sort of the accelerationist literature, some of the best of it, some of the early stuff, even he who must not be named um nick land has a lot of writing about you know uh, a, a kind of um transgendered future subject that capitalism will birth um that a lot of people still draw, draw upon and you know i think that's perfect you know it's 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 that's easily rooted in this modernist history um and it's it's there in a lot of this music anyway. I mean, there's, I think there's um, one something else that I sort of drawn in the introduction is um, Demdike Stare, who are a, a band that I think is quite quintessentially hauntological, though they probably reject the term. But they talk about, you know, being like witches, this kind of recombinatory, um, I don't know, incantations and making potions and things like that, and this kind of sorcery. Um that again is is so present in a lot of this sort of gendered writing, gendered thought that um, pushes against the kind of fallow logocentric capitalist patriarchy, all the rest of it. Um, that sort of you know futurist female sort of adage, I don't think is it's probably quite glib now, but actually you know it's, there's there's a lot of history there that um, I think Mark explores in at least maybe not so much in this book but definitely elsewhere writing about Susie and the Banshees and people like that and um yeah all the stuff that was to come um so that yes I'm I'm getting far off track <laughs> but I, mean, I, I think that all relates to this question of subjectivity I mean, or subjectification and yeah. how that is a prime battleground I think we're still seeing that at both kind of I guess the level of academic philosophy where, you know, there's all this sort of moral panics around um, queer theory and, um, uh, and also at the level of pop culture where pop music is getting more and more androgynous, I think. Yeah. Um, I carrying think, uh, that on. The, the, the big uh, artist who plots in my head when you were talking about this was uh, Mark's fascination with like uh, Grace Jones, you know, yes. Like, yeah. Like, great uh, example. An, an amazing, just an incredible example of exactly this, this, this problem of like, what is like the new the capital n new what you know what block would call the novum uh that you kind of see flickers of it in the anticipatory consciousness demands a a a new subject as well for it to be thought and to find a kind of full expression yes um and i guess it's yeah it's a it's a question of how we do that really there's so much that's been written about I mean, yeah, I don't want to get too far off topic. Actually, I'm sort of this is I'm, I'm far into this into this question that's taken me far beyond Mark's work, but um, it still has that sort of same double edged sword, right? You can. I don't think it's as though there was these battles at the time between hauntology and accelerationism. I think what's really interesting and why this book still is really relevant is that neither side kind of can totally win out. Um, that's kind of just who we are as sort of human beings i think we we can be both quite bloody minded and strive forwards half the time and the rest of the time we can have this kind of mournful hauntological part of our daily existence you know it's the, it takes all sorts um and i think that's partly what mark i think's wanted to deal with particularly in that question of subjectivity um um which he takes i guess especially later on a more sort of psychedelic approach to but what's that if you know not kind of dealing with both of those things the specters of the past and the hallucinations of the future um and seeing how closely related they are um these kind of you know having this you know you can i, I guess you could find parallels for that in all sorts of different cultural analyses and philosophical texts about i don't know how we're always self and other and things like that there's always this kind of light and dark yin and yang balance between different forces that um contradictions and all the rest of it that you know are kind of inherent to capitalism but inherent to well yeah uh, being a subject of the capitalism um and sticking a sort of pointy finger in there and whirling it around which i think mark does quite interestingly in especially in this book but i guess in and i guess also in the weird and eerie um is one way of i guess kicking up that dust um 
the dust of the crashed present and yeah, seeing what else might lie in store for later. Hell yeah. I I love this conversation so far. This is this is uh very it fits very well, I think, with the with the like thematics and the style of writing that constitutes the collected body of works that is ghosts of my life, right? It's it's fluidic, it's jumping around, it's kind of not uh it, it doesn't need to adhere to any kind of like temporal either like you know retrograde or anterograde linearity right like we're we're kind of like free to use all the pieces available to us available to us in having this conversation <laughs> i mean that's that's uh, true i wish it was <laughs> i wish it could be a bit more coherent with this it does make my like it i think it turns my mind to jelly trying to talk about this book and all the things that have sort of gone into it but um well, that's, that's very blob to logical yeah the, the, i think the whole point really the whole point of the reissue on one level at least to me is to kind of resist the um the 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 discoursification of mark fisher's work right mm-hmm. i sure i the kind of big the big disaster the big disaster that that could happen and, and might even happen is for there to be like an officially inaugurated idea of like mark fisher studies i think that'd be yeah. i think that'd be just just the worst possible thing because it would kind of it would it would be the ultimate reification of 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 the academic kind of like discourse machine gradually integrating these things which were produced both within and against it to itself um so yeah. i i i i'm there is something very odd about this book structurally but i think that's that's important and it's important to talk about it in a way which is sort of like this is not just history um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about for the last year or so. I've been thinking a lot about the book work of uh, Ernst Bloch and sort of like a, a Gothic Marxist philosophy of history, um, which is that to take seriously the idea that the past has never really gone, and to understand that as mm-hmm. opening the possibility of the future, uh, which yes. is, is is sort of an attempt to draw off, I suppose, both of those traditions of the hauntological and the accelerationist, but. You know, that, there's a there's a whole another strand of thought there, like uh, you know Walter Benjamin and uh, German idealism that that often gets kind of sort of skipped. But I think that's just because Mark was super into Spinoza and like cyberpunk theory and like William. So it's like I love I love that the, the book itself kind of resists canon formation, even though that now when people go, oh, ontology, oh, you mean burial. Like, like this, <laughs> this, 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 ca- this canon has kind of like, and so that's why I think it's such an important thing that this book is is reissued and is this still this strange temporally disjointed object simply because we don't need we don't need the 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 dogma of the correct line. What we need is the is the the concept that can be put to use. Yes. Um. Yeah, you. I mean, you kind of reminded me when sort of talking about that Mark Fisher studies. I know that a few people have already started using like the term Fisherian, um, which feels about as appropriate to me as kind of people talking about the well when things are Lynchian, which mm-hmm. I guess we kind of think of as maybe everyone knows what you mean when you say that, but to define it, you're really just talking about you're just sort of saying has the tone of something made by david lynch like it's yeah. sort of such a vague and i think that's sort of that that's that's fine if we can accept it as that it's like the thing you know that mark's writing has a very singular quality um but what's so sort of fascinating i think and energizing about it that makes it so current no matter what he's talking about past present or future um it's precisely that you know you can you can follow his work through and see him working through these different contradictions um he changes his mind all the time. It's a, uh, and, and, and I guess that's it is that that is that tension. I kind of feel it in having sort of unintentionally become a sort of, I think someone was, um, described me as Mark Fisher's archivist recently. Um, which is a strange, it's not an official title by any means, but that is kind of, there's <laughs> that, there's that tension in the work of, well, what does this do in itself as an object, as a book? What does it, what's a, you know, it doesn't, yeah, you don't need these lashings of theory and context necessarily to get something out of it. 
at the same time, I think there's interesting work to be done in doing that. Yeah, um, yeah but those but those things again, are not, it's, they're you, not you oppositional, that. are they? They're not oppositional. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's being able to, you know, continue to keep it, well, alive, really. Um, uh, at least I think Mark's thought. And I think that this, it's it's quite, it, I, I I only got my copies of the the new issue through, I think, a day or two ago. Um and found it's quite surreal, really, because, yeah, my original copy of Ghost of My Life is so battered. It's been everywhere with me. Same. Um, and yet to have a brand new copy with a brand new cover and then to sort of start flicking through it again and actually still feel that same sort of buzz um, from the first time. Um, it's kind it of a testament to it. felt like I was reading a it. different book yeah. this time through. No, yeah, exactly. And- and I think, like, one, I think that's very, very true in a, in a kind of banal way, right? Like, there's new material to this one. It's got a new cover, which does change how we encounter the text, et cetera, and so forth. But, but that's kind of, that that's given, right? You can't go into the same river twice. That, that's tired. But, but I think in a much more challenging way, like, one of the things that your introduction, and I also think the text as a whole kind of kind of grapples with is, like, the, the the closing thing you say in the introduction I really enjoyed that that's like the, the the seance necessarily precedes the exorcism yeah you know like 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 the, the this hauntological thing must come before whatever the next thing is and I think to to kind of like tether this momentarily to what John was talking about in regards to like Fisherian theory and the Center for Mark Fisher Studies which which <laughs> should not be like I think p- part of that is you know what what do we do with all these ghosts what do we do with this hauntological moment what do we do with the fact that in 2022 this text is still as relevant as as it was when it was first released like like the groove that we're we're caught in culturally that fisher was commenting on and critiquing and, and analyzing and trying to study a way out of has, has only digs deeper with time yeah i think that's i mean yeah, I don't know. It's it, it, it's such a strange thing to talk about. Really, is that you're kind of reading back my own introduction to me, and I'm like, yeah, that's quite a good point, actually. <laughs> but then um, it is. I mean, I believe that. I do believe that. But then it's something else to actually. I guess that's the tension I'm trying to think about. Maybe it's the writing the introduction was a great opportunity to reflect on this book, um, but it's a very different thing to do that and send it off and get it putting on paper and actually to try and think about that in life in sort of in lived experience um and that's the tension i think that it's there's so much that still feels unresolved um in a way well in that sense and 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 yeah there's and there's a tension in that unresolvedness right you can kind of be sort of melancholic about it when thinking about mark and what happened to him and actually then there's a lot of positivity in there where you can see that well there's questions here that can still be answered by other people there's there's steps forwards to be taken um and i think maybe yeah that's the the wonderful thing about having a new edition really um it none of this is and i mean i think it's true of zero in general i mean um um i, I think that, that even in a kind of what a more practical commercial sense there's a there's a strategy in putting out these new zero classics editions where you know this this then it's now they're now kind of quite an a famous or infamous press but there's so much that was first sort of came out in those early years that it's probably just kind of gone by the wayside people know about mark and a few other books maybe but there's actually so much great stuff there mm-hmm. um that kind of warrants another look because yeah a lot of it is still relevant um i mean think, thinking about it it's only it's it's, it's barely been a decade um uh just a decade and a half um since it was founded but and it's that same tension again like what 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 is it isn't isn't it is it premature to reissue a book that's only eight years old um but then again it's that same thing is that eight years feels like such a long time um 2014 feels like an alien planet um but again so much is unchanged that it becomes a really interesting exercise to, I guess, read this over 
um, see what was said in 2014 and see what sort of resonates and what doesn't. Um, I guess that's true of any book that you read far after it was first come out, but there's something particularly resonant about doing it with Mark, I think, that um, only exacerbates that cleft, I suppose, that strange indeterminacy, that temporal indeterminacy that we have where, yeah, we're, we're still sort of in the seance, actually. We haven't got around to the exorcism, um, and maybe we will eventually, but... Um, I don't know. Yeah, I just I I'm, I I do still think about that metaphor all the time. Actually, I think it's maybe it, it, well. If I can, I'm trying not to. I don't mean it sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet, but I, it's like one of those things. It's one of those thoughts that actually um, uh, organize things in my own head. If that makes sense, because um, I think it is. There is such a. The, the, the space between what Mark was writing about here, capitalist realism, weird and eerie, ghost, um, acid communism, there's, there's, it's almost like there's people see these multiple different marks, but actually it's this one person who's having thoughts along that kind of journey, um, who's both, you know, yeah, in the seance and thinking about the exorcism and doing both of those things, you know, simultaneously. Um, uh, and it's intriguing now to read it back and see that. I guess that's it. Is I kind of I maybe hope that these new issues will maybe settle some of the the strange interpretations that have come out since, where it is one or the other, or these sort of patchwork marks that um, are yeah, kind of spectres that. Well, I think that's you know that Simon Reynolds in his afterward does the I think a great job of reflecting on that better than I think I could have done um, in talking about the spectres of marks. Um, or Mark's spectres. Um, there was something that we were thinking about at Goldsmiths not long after, well, in the immediate aftermath of Mark's death. Um, and it's intriguing even to sort of, you know, we're five years now since Mark died, but those spectres themselves are still there. Um, there's always that kind of mourning and remembrance that's going on, that kind of, in that process of grief. But then actually, you know, that's, there's not too much different in, how we think about our own politics almost. I don't know. I kind of spend a lot of time on Twitter still and the sort of specter of Jeremy Corbyn's never kind of going away. Um, <laughs> and I wonder what to do about that even, you know, it's sometimes I'm like, yeah, he did get a sort of, he got a bad lot and the media were shit. But at what point does, you know, not letting that go become a way of staying stuck in a moment? Yeah, at what, at what um, point does mourning become melancholia? Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, and it's those kinds of questions that I think really... It, 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 reading this book now after all of that, I think frames a lot of it differently in a way that's pretty interesting, I yeah. think. I think the, the kind of the great value of this book, and it, actually so many of like the Zero Books back catalogue, is like we're very, we're very good at kind of creating sort of dogmas of like... Um, you know, yeah. the, this, this idea of like thought becomes a kind of doctrine. And actually what, what Zero and, and uh, so many of the people who came through that process are so good at is actually turning thought into active processes, right? And because the whole point mm -hmm. of it is not to, the whole point really, I think, of, re of reading someone like Mark is not to be like, oh, let's try and decode this project. The whole point is to understand that thought is a process by which consciousness itself can be altered. And that you are not, you're not kind of learning the script, you know, the Fisherian script. What you're learning is your own ways of thought and the way that co your consciousness can be changed by an encounter with culture, by having, by having, uh, you know, this, this person who thinks in front of you. That's what reading Mark is like, right? It's, it's watching somebody think on the page in front of you in, in this really immediate way. Um, that makes the whole thing so much more kind of uh, participatory rather than being something that you kind of like just take on and learn. And uh, the thing, the thing that sort of pops into my head as you were talking about was um, the amazing, the amazing meme that floats around occasionally. Um, Mark Fisher would have loved Cardi B. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh god, yeah. I don't know where that came from. But yeah, my friend Natasha Eves made a series of scarves with that slogan on. I think it was something said in a class once that they just yeah, yeah uh, immortalized <laughs> in knitwear. Uh, you know, like uh, Cardi B, Sophie, so many other artists as well. Uh, like th- yeah. there are there <clears> are still ways in which the whole point is not to be like you know, I found myself going, "Oh, I would I wonder what I wonder what Mark would have said about X. And then I go, actually, hang on. Why am I deferring the kind of intellectual capacity mm-hmm. that reading Mark helped me realize that I have to this kind of absent other, right? To the, to the ghost on my shoulder. When in fact, the, the whole thing is to go, actually, uh, that, that ghost is still here in some ways. And I can, I can communicate. I can commune. In ways that that, that these, these ghosts and these specters can't, which to me is a very empowering thing. That's that's the kind of great joy of rereading this. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think that's it's something that I think reflects even like the development of in a really kind of this is going to sound really dry, but um, sort of the sort of changes in education at around the time Mark was writing. Like I always think about. Um, I guess he's writing in capitalist realism and some passages from that get sort of a bit, a few critiques now because that people think Mark's really hard on his students who are sort of all distracted and, and dis disenfranchised. And even, you know, he seems to just think they're kind of lazy. They, they, they want everything immediately. And it's just kind of, it, it, some of it is quite harsh, but I, to be honest, I recognise the generation in there that was definitely mine. I think I was at college. I was the age that I would have been the same age as Mark's students were when he was writing that book. Um, and this was before sort of the trebling of tuition fees. Um, the financial crisis just kind of felt like a abstraction, really, when you're sort of in your teenage years and don't really know much about economics. Um so there hadn't been quite that moment that we now will take for granted of this sort of immediate, quite rapid politicization that, you know, gave us all kinds of different media. Um, I kind of think about Navarra media, especially in this country, that they're always, they seem to be like a, you know, a huge, probably one of the biggest independent left media organizations in this country. Um, and all the people that, you know, are part of that talk quite openly about being, um, politicized by the rise in tuition fees. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, going back to that, um, being a sort of college student in 2009, I remember doing an A-level in media studies um, and that kind of being a really weird subject that was kind of berated as seen as being completely useless. Like, what are you learning about telly for? That's How is this a serious academic pursuit? Um, but actually, like that being the first time I ever heard about Baudrillard or Gramsci or loads of stuff that would later kind of become more important at university. And I think Mark's writing kind of chimed with that moment. He was someone that was, you know, really literate in um, media literate, Um, not just in terms of literature. I guess Mark had done a sort of PhD in philosophy and literature and studied English literature more generally, but he's writing about films, music, TV shows. Um, and I think kind of spoke to a generation in that way. Um, uh, kind of think about Richard Hogarth's, his sort of uses of literacy. Um, but, you know, what about the uses of media literacy? I think that's a conversation that's just kind of come about. And Mark was there to, as you say, you know, it's not just that Mark, for me anyway, it was never that Mark had specifically, you know, profound insights into things I'd never have thought of. It's that he was actually dealing, taking seriously what I was consuming every day. I think that's true for a lot of people. He, he, he just, he, he allowed people to take seriously their own kind of cultural milieu um, and read it for what it was, for what it was saying about not just the present, but where we were going. Um, And yeah, I think at his best, Mark doesn't, isn't kind of didactic. It's not really about what he particularly thinks. Um, I always end up laughing about it because I think people often ask me, what would Mark think about whatever else? And I mean, like, I don't think Mark and me, if we'd gotten to know each other properly, wouldn't have liked each other that much. We had completely (laughs) different tastes in culture, like completely different, but because we're from different generations, 
but regardless of that fact, he was sort of he he showed he he was an example for how to take your own the cultural product of your own generation seriously. Um, like Ghost of My Life is just full of stuff that Mark grew up with. It's and I think some people see it as nostalgic, but what Mark's writing about is 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 the stuff that was you know it's the stuff that. It was once his now, if that makes sense, um, and he saw echoes of that in the future, in 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 uh, that was being produced by a generation that maybe didn't know that history and didn't need to know that history. But there was sort of that structure of feeling that was resonating through the through the years, down the years, down the decades. Um, and Mark yeah, just gave a sort of led the way, I think, in allowing people to think however they wanted about what was happening around them, um, going from culture to politics and. Yeah, I think it's no coincidence, really, that he became quite so popular and sort of such a cult figure um, at that time when I think we had all these new media technologies, new modes of consuming music, film, TV, um, and sort of highlighting both what was going on now, what we may for better or worse, have to look forward to in the future, but also things that were lost, TV shows that no one would ever probably have known about um, were it, you know, for a certain generation without his kind of enthusiasm. Um, I don't know, as, this, as I get older, sort of 10 years on from first started reading that stuff, you kind of do feel that, I think, this sort of, you see these strange echoes of, I don't know, I see echoes of weird noughties culture in the present all the time and you know that that's not a conscious echo it's just these figuring out what has what has continued through despite itself sort of survived that weird unnatural selection process of kind of late capitalism is um yeah mark was set the i guess um what's the word um threw down the torch, I guess, in one way, threw down the gauntlet <laughs> of how to actually deal with the stuff that we're bombarded with. Yeah, yeah, those are some really great points on Mark Fisher and this reissue of Ghost of My Life and, and your new introduction. Um, do, we have any, do we have any parting comments on uh, the, the anti-founding of the Uncenter for Not Fisher Studies? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's just it's still here. It's still it's still with us. There are, um, you know, the the whole the it, it's it strikes me really as a kind of really obvious um, continuation into the weird and the eerie because like really the great sort of struggle uh, of living at the end of you know quote unquote cultural history is learning how to live with the the kind of wreckage and the ghosts and the ruin. Uh, and in them find kind of like not just uh, not just echoes of a history that's been kind of shattered by you know the hammer and the anvil of contemporary modernity, but like the possibilities of something beyond it too. Um, it's um, yeah, it's it's you know if like Ash said, if it's it still feels new, it still feels uh, eminently recognizable. Yeah, yeah, and and so to, to my my closing thought would be to to kind of build off of what both of you were saying, and like when I read Fisher, it's not the same as when I read like Derrida himself or Marx or Zizek or like other other people. I feel more like this is a, this is a ready made toolkit, right? Like th these are things that I can pick up and use and utilize, and like it's less. Like oh my god, Matt! When you when you said what, what was it like the lash of theory? I, I believe that was your phrase. Um, that was I loved that. That was beautiful. But like that, that's just there are kind of two ways you can take that, right? You're either being lashed by it, or you 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 could do something wonderful with that, right? Like you know, it's it's the lash of the dom or the dominatrix, right? Like you are you are in command of media. You know, this is a, this is a toolkit that you can use and interrogate, and there's something so fresh and alive about these ghosts. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think it's the, it's just another wonderful tension in Mark's work, really. Um, I kind of, 
I think there's often this, I feel like we're, we're definitely gushing and there's plenty of reason to gush, but then I kind of always hear the critics in the back of my head that are like, Mark wasn't that special. He didn't do anything too groundbreaking. He just kind of reorganized things or something. But actually there's a, there's a, there's a real, that can't be understated quite how easy Mark made it look. I think that's the thing. It feels so accessible. Um, it is so accessible. Um, it's energizing. And it's that energy that I think people really remember uh, more than anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah. to sort of even add to that, that there's still lots of meat in there. The way that Mark just sprinkles in Zizek and Spinoza like it's nothing mm-hmm. that you don't even notice. You realize that you're reading complex theory and you haven't, it's just there now in your brain. You don't even realize the kind of wormhole you've been pulled through. Um, that's the thing that, is wonderful and I think yeah reading this book through again really made clear for me too that I mean I feel like I'm been rambling and all over the place tonight and I just kind of know that from <laughs> it's it's a deficiency that Mark didn't have he was he was he had a way of making all of this stuff fit together in such ease um that's really quite enviable but also isn't out of reach for the next person to come along and you know, inspire a new generation to keep looking for the gaps in the present. Oh, that is a beautiful thing to end this episode on. I think that is a wonderful statement. And if you are dear listeners, the ghouls of the audience wish to pick up this book, uh, you can head to johnhuntpublishing.com slash zero spelled with the number zero dash books and grab your own copy of the new uh, zero classics issue of Mark Fisher's ghosts of my life. Yeah, let's um, wrap it up. I think I'll hit... Oh, oh, re- oh really quick. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, my God. I almost forgot. One of the most important things. Matt, where can our listeners find and support you? Oh, um, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, my uh, I, I uh, blog at xenogothic.com. Um, you can find me on all the social media hellholes at xenogothic. <laughs> um, and, yeah, Um support Mark Fisher's work. It's still as relevant as ever. Excellent. Links to everything will be in the description and we'll see you wonderful ghouls later. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.